And uh, let me say again what a pleasure it is to be with you. One of the pleasures, only one of the pleasures of uh, preaching uh, outside of your own church with your own family is that they don't get to point out my misspeaks when I go home. (laughs) Um, But there are other pleasures, and it is a real joy to be with you. And uh, let me just say we're so excited for you as another church here in the city at the call of your new uh, minister. You are, of course, a church that has a rich history. You are a church that is a present blessing and, and, and real gospel light in this city. And we hope and pray that you will continue to be a church that God will use to do great things for the cause of Christ here uh, and indeed beyond the bounds of this city and through the world. You have our prayers and please be assured you always will have our gospel partnership as well. Let's uh, pray together. Father, as we turn to your word, we pray that the Spirit of God might come and might be our teacher. Lord, that we might see great beautiful, precious truths, words of instruction, words of encouragement, words of comfort for us in these days, that we might know them to be true, that we might, by your grace and by your Spirit at work within us, be enabled, Lord, to believe them, to stand upon them, and to live them out. And so, Lord, as we gather, albeit in this strange way, I would pray, Lord, that you would come and that you would put a watch over my lips so that the words of my mouth and, Lord, as people listen, the the meditations of all of our hearts might prove acceptable to you, O God, our great rock and our redeemer. For this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, those of us who, those of you who tuned in this morning will know that we were as we turn to Isaiah 28, addressing the issue, the question of, of security. And of course, being intelligent people, and I know that you are here in this church, you won't need me to tell you that that appeal, that appeal to security in an insecure world is one that well appeals, <laughs> appeals to many, if not to most of us, and it is big business. When you reach a certain stage of life, one that I seem to now have entered into, you will notice and be targeted increasingly by such appeals. Whether it's life insurance or retirement plans, if you're a minister, there's no chance, of course, or vaccines. At times it's overstated, we know that, but it all taps into something deep within us. The world is a scary place. The future is uncertain. So where? Where are you going to look to for your security? And God's people are no different, at least not in wishing to feel secure, although hopefully we are different when it comes to where we look for it. So too Psalm 121, which speaks of God's keeping power over our lives. That's what the psalmist wants to impress upon us, the extent to which God is involved in the business of of watching over us, of caring for us, of guarding, of protecting, of keeping us. Let's look at some of the words there. I'm reading from the ESV. I don't think it's particularly different, though, from the NIV. Verse 5, the psalmist says, the Lord is your keeper. Verse 7, the Lord will keep you. Again, he will keep your life. And then again, verse 8, the Lord will keep. 
That's what the psalmist wants to impress upon us, the, the keeping, caring power of God through all of life. So let's, lock, let's walk through this, this psalm together. Not so much in, in linear progression, although that's probably how it will uh, fall out, but, but more like you might look at a precious jewel from different angles to see different aspects and appreciate all the more of it. So first then, let's notice the conviction, the conviction that the psalmist has behind God's keeping power. Now it's verses 1 and 2 which come to us a little bit like, the, like in the form of a catechism with verse 1 posing the question and verse 2 giving us the answer. And so he says in verse 1, I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? Now just what the hills that he has in mind are, what they represent to him, in all honesty, I don't think we can be sure. Since this is one of the psalms of ascent that in all likelihood were sung by traveling pilgrims as they made their way up to Jerusalem to take part in one of the great feasts that were associated with the temple there. And since Jerusalem occupies an an elevated position, well, to get there, you would need to ascend to it from pretty much every point on the compass, hence the psalms of ascent. And so it could, it could very well be that the hills that the psalmist has in view are the hills which surround Jerusalem where the temple is located, where God meets with his people. And the anticipation of that event, well, it strengthens his soul and it brings joy to his heart. It could be that. It could be anticipation. There are, however, other possibilities that they may represent to him not anticipation, but actually intimidation And that they might not be the hills that surround Jerusalem, but rather some altogether more difficult and dangerous terrain that he has to pass through, either to get there or to return home. And so as the traveler goes, he looks up at them, potentially full of marauding bandits or wild beasts, and he says, oh no, where's my help going to come from? So it could be anticipation, it could be intimidation. Some have even suggested that they could represent for the the, the traveler a form of temptation. Because in the ancient Near East, it was on the tops of hills that the pagan nations would have built their altars to their gods and would appeal to them for help in life, for security in the midst of life's threats. And so the pilgrim traveler, the believer in Yahweh God, would have had to reject ever going there for their help. So there is something of ambiguity about these hills and what they represent, and that might be frustrating for some, but actually, actually I want to suggest it doesn't really matter because what they stand for is not the real question. Rather, the real question is the one that the psalmist goes on to ask, where does my help come from? So we go from the question to the answer. And it's a good question, isn't it? It's an important question. It's one which many of us might find ourselves asking on a routine basis. It may be one that is pressing down upon you just now or one that will in the near future. And to answer it, we need to go from verse 1 to verse 2. We need to go, if you like, from the catechism to the creed. My help. 
My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. And in affirming that, the psalmist renounces all other help except that which the Lord can give. Would you notice the wonderful jump he makes? My help, he says. As in the help I need, the help that is specific to, to my pilgrimage, my journey, my obstacles. Well, it comes from the Lord. Who did what? Who made heaven and earth. So in other words, the hills, whatever they might represent to him, whether longevity and security or danger and difficulty or temptation even, my help is not to be found in them. My help comes from the one who made and sustains and controls them. Not only that, who made and sustains and controls the very heavens and the earth. There's a kind of a wonderful logic there, isn't there? If God can do that, then surely God can handle this. Whatever that this might be for you. My help, your help this evening, this week, through this difficult COVID season, and please God, through the months and the years that are to come on the other side of it, it comes from the Lord. Who created, who sustains, who controls absolutely everything. And if that is true, as it surely is, then think about it. There is nothing. There is no area of life that is beyond the bound of his understanding or the orb of his care or the limits of his control. He is an able God. In fact, he is the God of Ephesians 3, the God who is not only able, but who is able to do far more abundantly than we could ever ask or think or imagine. So if you're tuning in here tonight and you find yourself saying, Oh my, this journey that I am on, this season that I find myself in, where is my help going to come from? Well, be encouraged. You're not the first one to say that. But also, also go on. Say along with the psalmist, my help. It comes from the Lord, the the maker of heaven and earth. And that's no small thing. And he is able. That's the first thing we see. the, The conviction that underpins what the psalmist says of God's keeping power. But then notice, interestingly, there's a, there's a shift between verses 1 and 2 and verse 3. In verse 1 and 2, it's, it's all I, isn't it? I lift up my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? My help, it comes from the, the Lord. Now it becomes he. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you. He's moving from the first person singular to the second person. And what's he doing in that? Well, different folks will offer different answers, but I think he's, well, he's talking to himself, isn't he? Not as a sign of madness, but as a means actually of preserving his sanity, of bringing clarity to his situation. He's talking to himself. Actually, he's preaching to himself, as I find I often have to do, because there's one thing to say it, 
It's another thing to believe it, to stand under it, to, to, to live it out. So he's preaching to himself. He's reminding himself, maybe also to other pilgrims or in the group as they travel together. This was something that was sung. Certainly he's reminding us who get to read it. What? Well, essentially, this is true. This is who God is. This is what God is able to do. This is what you need to believe, therefore, in this situation, whatever it is. So speak to yourself, encourage yourself, preach to yourself to believe it. Focus your mind on it, incline your heart in this direction. Remind yourself of it when you get up in the morning. Embrace it in the difficulties of life. Let this be the voice that goes round and round your head when you need help, when calamity threatens Remind yourselves of these great truths about God. Hear these promises. Stand upon them. He's the Lord. He's the creator. He's the sustainer. He is able. And look, look what he says. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. You see, the convictions that he has about God's care, they lead him on to something else, namely an affirmation of the constancy of God's care. That God is always there. That God is always on the job. That God is never asleep. And that actually contrasted greatly with the the pagan gods of the day that Israel repeatedly was tempted to turn and to trust in. Ancient literature describes that they they did get tired. They did need rest. And you see something of that in the interplay between the the prophets of of Baal and, and Elijah on Mount Carmel. As these prophets wind themselves up into an ever-increasing frenzy in an attempt to call down fire from heaven to consume their sacrifices. And Elijah, Elijah stands on the sidelines and, and taunts them as there is no response from Baal. And he says to them, maybe he's asleep. Maybe you need to shout louder to wake him. And they do, but they can't. And of course they can't because he's nothing, because he's no one. He can't hear or see or do. He can't help. But, says the psalmist, the Lord can. He is the maker of heaven and earth. He won't let your foot be moved. He's always on the case. He's always available. He may be called upon in every circumstance, at every time of the day, even in the dark watches of the night. You know, we, we need our sleep, don't we? Certainly I do. It's a terrible thing to be robbed of. We need it because we're weak. Because we're finite. Because we need the regular rhythm of refreshment it provides. But not God. Not the one to whom we can go. He is infinite in power. And he is omnipresent in this world. Now of course we would never do what the prophets of Baal did. We don't have that worldview. But there are other ways, aren't there, where we might be tempted to 
to deny the constancy of God's care. When we maybe think that God is too busy for us to bring our problems before him. Yeah, he's busy sustaining the, the, the world, but this little thing that I'm dealing with, that, that, that's, that's not appropriate. Or when redundancy strikes or ill health threatens or loss comes on us. And we're tempted to conclude that God must somehow have gotten diverted or bored with us, that his attention is focused on the big stuff or maybe the more important Christian. We'd never say that, of course, and we don't really believe that, not on the level of our affirmations at least, but it sneaks in. And we can begin to function like that, and it robs us of our joy, of our peace, of our security. So we, we like the psalmist, we need to preach to ourselves. We need to remind ourselves of the convictions that underpin our affirmations that God can keep us. And that he is always there for us. The the constancy of his keeping power for us. And also also the closeness of it. Look at verses 5 and 6. The psalmist says, the Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on, on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day nor the moon by night. The, The psalmist began this psalm by speaking of God's work and creation. He's the maker of heaven and earth. He went on to speak of his work in history. In verse 4, he is Israel's keeper. But here it is wonderfully, deeply personal. Isn't that great? To this God, you are not lost in the universe or in the midst of the crowd. He knows you. The Lord is your keeper. He is as close to you as a shade over your right hand. And because of that closeness of God, you're safe, says the psalmist. You're sheltered. So verse 6, the sun shall not strike you by day nor the moon by night. What does that mean? Well, some see this to be a a reference to the totality of life, to what might affect you by day or surprise you by night. Some simply see it as a reference to the physical, to the burning sun, to the peculiar challenges that might come upon you in the darkness. Some, because of the way in the ancient Near East, the the way that the sun and the moon were worshipped, see this to be a, a spiritual reference. But whether it's sunstroke or whether it's some infernal power or simply life from dusk till dawn and dawn till dusk, the promise, the promise seems all-encompassing, doesn't it? God's care, God's keeping power, whatever the circumstances will be there, he is that close. How do we understand the care and keeping power of our God through our earthly pilgrimage. Well, through the convictions about God that underpin it, through reminding ourselves of its constancy, through reflecting on its closeness like a, like a shade over our right hand, but also, also by rejoicing in its completeness. That's verses 7 and 8. And they almost seem too much, don't they? 
they almost seem too much. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in, all of your movements from this time forth and, and forevermore. The totality of human experience seems to be in view here, doesn't it? So how do we understand this? Is it true that our feet will never be moved, that we ourselves will never stumble, that we will be kept from all evil, as the psalmist says in verse 7? And when he says that, he doesn't necessarily mean all moral evil. That word can be used as a reference to, to every kind of harm or disaster that might befall us. Is that what we are being promised? Well, you know what? You don't have to go too far. You don't even need to go out with the book of Psalms even to know that that is not the case because bad things, they do happen to good people, to God's people. That was David's experience repeatedly. Biblical history, church history, and of course the present day experience of many of God's people shows us clearly that plenty bad stuff, plenty appalling stuff, plenty evil stuff has happened, does happen to God's people. And I'm guessing that most of you who are, who are tuning in here tonight will have lived long enough now to know that there is no exemption in this world from the rigors of life for Christians. We get sick. Loved ones grow old and die. Relationships get strained. Our kids rebel. We hurt. And yes, we often hurt others. So what do we do with a statement or a promise like this? Well, let me suggest we look at it closely. And we interpret it in the light of all that the Bible has to say on the matter. For instance, as we look at it closely, it doesn't actually promise that we will never, for instance, contract COVID. Or that we or a loved one will never die of it or of anything else. It doesn't say that. Actually, it's telling us something better. That no accident, injury, illness, or distress will ever be allowed to have evil power over us. That is, that it won't be able to separate us from God's purposes in us and for us. Won't ever be able to, to pry us loose from the glue of God's love for us. So it's not promising immunity from everything. And, and we crave that, don't we? Especially at this time. Immunity. We would love that. And that's not bad. But there is a difference between immunity and security. And the Lord gives to us not the immunity we might want, but instead the security that we need in this life and for the next. That's what Paul writes of, isn't it? Magisterially. In Romans 8, when he says that nothing, not life, not death, not angels or rulers, nor present things, nor 
things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in God's creation will be able to separate us from the, from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And then again, in his final letter, in Second Timothy, knowing that his, his time on earth was running out, that he was living out his last days under the shadow of the executioner's sword. He wrote in 2 Timothy 4, 16-18 about the, the folks that had abandoned him, but about of how God had never abandoned him. Of how God had rescued him. And then in verse 18 of chapter 4, about how the Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. And he didn't write that because he didn't know he was about to die. He did. He wrote that, almost quoting, paraphrasing certainly, Psalm 121. He wrote that because he believed it to be true. Even confined in a bottled dungeon, even facing the prospect of imminent execution, he wrote, the Lord will keep us from every evil. And the Lord is able to bring us safely through to our heavenly home. So what do we do? We keep going, don't we? We keep plodding on through every season and through all life's challenging circumstances in life and in death reciting the creed my help my help it comes from the Lord who is the maker of heaven and earth let's pray Father, again, I pray that you would take your word, especially that you would take this lovely psalm of ascent and all of the beautiful promises that are contained within it, and you would help us, your people, those who are seeking to live for you in this, our generation, in these, our challenges, and know its promises to be true that we, like the psalmist, might have unshakable confidence in your keeping power and your ability through the twists and turns and even the dark threads of life. Lord, to watch over us, to ensure that nothing happens to us that could ever separate us from your love. And to one day bring us home and into the presence of our Lord and Savior. Father, I pray especially for those who, who are weary and who especially need to hear this word this evening. Need to be reassured that you are able to handle whatever is going on in their life. Need to be reminded that you cannot be distracted, that you are never asleep, that your care is constant, that your care is close, it is personal. 
and that your care is complete. Because nothing, nothing can take us out of your hand if we are in Christ Jesus. So may these truths encourage us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.